Good morning. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Our Father and our God, we are so grateful to be able to gather together as a church family and to bring you praise and to express our love for you, our adoration, our gratitude. It is our continued heart of worship that we now turn to giving you our attention and listening to your word and examining to see what the Spirit has to say to the church today. And so with anticipation, we await your words. We invite you to speak to us in the name of your Son and by the agency of your Holy Spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to do something a little bit different today. I, I realize we are studying through the book of Romans, but I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Amos. So um, open your Bibles to the middle and find Psalms. And start moving to the right. You'll pass Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Those are the major prophets. And when we get to the minor prophets, if you get, if you get to Micah, where we were last week, you've gone too far. We're looking for Amos. So if you have the ESV study Bible, it's on page 1266. If you want to look in the table of contents, that's fine. There's no shame in that, but find the book of Amos. I'd like to thank Jacob for uh, preaching for me last week so that I could spend the week with my family. Hanson and Jacob have both been preaching through the Old Testament, the minor prophets. Um, all of the minor prophets had essentially one message. They were warning Israel and Judah um, about God's coming judgment. And Amos is a case in point. So Amos chapter 1, if you look down in verse 3, we're just going to skip through. We're going to make it through the entire book of Amos in about two minutes. <laughs> Amos chapter 1, verse 3, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus and for four I will not revoke its punishment, because they have threshed uh, Gilead with the threshing sledges of iron. Verse 6, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they've carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. Verse 9, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Verse 11, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Verse 13, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Verse Chapter 2, verse 1, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four I will not revoke the punishment. You see what Amos is doing here is he is literally making a circle around Israel and he is telling them about um, God's coming judgment upon these uh, neighbors. Now these are Israel's enemies. These are the people that threaten Israel. And so when they hear Amos talking about God's certain and coming judgment upon these people, about how it's an awful and unavoidable fate, they're going, yeah, you give it to them. Don't let up. Don't make it easy on them. Don't, don't uh, relent. And so now Amos begins to tighten the noose. Verse, chapter 2, verse 4, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. But their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah and shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Now, who is he talking to? You know, who is the Lord addressing in this? Surely not God's covenant people, not the Jews, not the people who worship God. Certainly he's not talking about the people of the covenant. Chapter 3, verse 1. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families on the earth. Therefore, I will bless you. Therefore, I will protect you. Therefore, I will prosper you. Therefore, you will be exempt from the wrath of God. You only have I known of all the peoples of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. See, the Jews thought they were safe from God's judgment. They are insulated from God's wrath because they are the people of his covenant love. They're exempt from the wrath of God. Now, the irony in all of that is today 
We are the covenant people of God. We are the new Israel. We are the chosen ones. We are the ones who are in this covenant relationship with God. And we too think that because of this relationship we have with God, we are somehow insulated from God's judgment and from God's wrath. We're his people. We're his beloved. We have this special place with God because, because what? Because we belong to a cool church? Because we've walked the aisle, we signed our name on the card, we, 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 we made the prayer, uh, we, we were baptized. Somehow now we're the covenant people with God, and God can be mad at the whole rest of the world, at all other men, at all other humanity, but somehow we are exempt from that. He would, he would never discipline someone who calls himself a Christian, or would he? Now, I'd like you to take your Bibles again and turn with me to the chapter and the verse we're examining, beginning in Romans chapter 2, 17. Don't fake me out. You actually need to watch and read along with me because, again, I'm doing something different today. Now, we've been noticed. Uh, please turn there, Romans 2, 17. <laughs> we've noted in our study through Romans thus far that Paul has uh, placed all man on trial. There's this courtroom setting. The language is that of a, of a trial before God. And he's basically saying that man has not lived up to the knowledge about God that God has given. Men have universally rejected God. They universally reject what they know about God, and God is calling them into account. Because of their rejection of God, of what they know, they will stand before God without excuse. No one has a reason to say, I didn't know. Nobody told me. There's no escape from the righteous judgment of God. So at first we looked at men who lacked restraint, who had uh, no um, moral boundaries, and because of this they fell into moral and religious entropy, and consequently they devolved into this perversity and idolatry. And then we talked about men who do restrain themselves, who, who do conform to moral and ethical codes, and yet still they are, uh, their position is infinitely insufficient from God's righteous requirements. And consequently, God's wrath, God's judgment is building up, like, like water building up behind a dam, just waiting for the moment when the floodgates burst open and the full fury of God's indignation against wickedness and rebellion is, is let loose. There's, there's no excuse and there's no escape from the judgment of God. And the only escape that there is is for us to flee to God to receive his, his grace that's revealed in the gospel um, through the cross of Jesus Christ to receive the righteousness which Christ earned for us, which is transferred to us. That's what we are here to celebrate at this communion table Today, we, we flee to God for His grace, and we understand that though we must stand before God, we will not be punished for our sins because God is fully satisfied that the punishment has been completely meted out and, and accepted. But nevertheless, um, we are in this same courtroom today. Paul has indicted uh, the Gentiles. Now, Paul turns his indictment to the Jews, the covenant people of God, the people who are his people by name. And he tells us that even as the Gentiles did not live up to the light they had, so too the Jews have not lived up to the light they have been given. And just as the Gentiles will be judged by their works, so too the people of God, the covenant people, the Jews, will be judged because they are just as guilty, if not more so, because they knew better. Now, the Jewish people have this special place of, of privilege and, and revelation. The whole world has been given this general revelation. God has revealed who he is, both to their conscience and in the creation. But we call that general revelation, that all people can see that about God. But the Jews have taken it even a step further, because they have been the recipients of special revelations. They have received this, this information that not all people are aware of. God has revealed himself through a whole string of, of kings and prophets, and, um, uh, and I just had a, a brain lesion here, uh, <laughs> the Old Testament writers. <laughs> and so these, these Jews who are 
recipients of the promise, who have become the recipients of the covenant that God made with Abraham, who have been recipients of God's word that has been revealed to them through the Old Testament, God has higher expectations because they have this higher place of privilege. So every Jew, every Gentile alike has this witness in his heart, in his conscience, but the Jew also has the, the written word of God that, that we also recognize as the word of God. And so they are without excuse. And every man, every human being um, is aware of God and also aware that their life does not meet God's requirements. And so we are told, uh, Romans 1.16 maybe, we are told that they understand that and they understand that they're worthy of death be, because of that. So. Uh, um, they, they must stand before, before the judgment of God. So the problem is that while we instinctively are aware that we don't meet the requirements of the deity of God, everybody thinks somehow they're going to escape the coming judgment. They know they're going to have to stand in judgment, but they think somehow they're going to escape the judgment themselves. You know, whether consciously or, or, or subconsciously, religiously or irreligiously, deep within, they desperately hope they are not going to have to face a just judge for the crimes that they have committed. They want some kind of assurance they will not be punished for the evil that they have done. And so to attempt that, we have devised all kinds of mental maneuvering, mental gymnastics, we, to try to escape the idea that we will have to stand in judgment and that could possibly result in our punishment. Some people build up this false sense of spiritual security because they want to say, well, I am basically a good person. And we have plenty of preachers today who will tell you man is basically good, he just needs to be straightened out. Joel Olstein is one of these guys. And people say, well, I'm basically a good person, and God is basically a good guy. And if my life is weighed in the balance, and I know I did some stuff when I was younger, but if you weigh things out, I think I'll come out all right. And they believe that they can somehow be pleasing and acceptable to God. Or a slight modification of that theory is that God is good and loving it's his business to forgive. He understands our human weakness. And so when it comes right down to it, God is really unwilling to send anyone to hell. And that God will do everything to make sure that everyone ultimately um, is rescued from hell. And still there's other people who conclude, well, there just is no God. Therefore, there is no one for me to have to stand before. So the idea of judgment is therefore ludicrous. And these these Feelings are so common that there are millions of other people to share your opinion on that. And you can feel secure in the great number of people that think like you do, just like the great number of flies that eat things that you wouldn't normally eat. Just because a lot of people believe that doesn't make it true. You can find reassurance in the numbers, but it's better to find reassurance in truth. So far from being cruel and insensitive, like Christians are frequently accused of being, it is actually the kindest, most loving thing for us to warn people of this coming judgment, that you should be concerned about this. You, if somebody is to be commended because they run into a building and, and warn the occupants that the house is on fire, or if you stood in front of a a bridge that was collapsing and you warned the people not to collapse it, you would be commended for that. How much more should the Christian be commended for warning people that they stand in the position of facing God as a judge and they need to flee to his grace or face him as a, as a righteous judge? But before any, any motivation can be made for someone to want to flee to God for grace, he has to first understand his desperate position as a sinner faced with a holy God. I mean, you obviously have to come to the conclusion that you were lost before you have any desire to want to be saved. Now, Paul is tightening the noose around these very religious people. They know God's will. They know God's word. They are the chosen people. They are the covenant people. They are the people who have been redeemed by grace. 
Let's read what he says. You must follow Romans chapter 2, verse 17. But if you call yourself a Christian, and you rely on Scripture, and you boast in God and know His will and approve of what's excellent because you've been instructed from Scripture, and if you're sure that you're a, a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in the darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the Scripture, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, don't you teach yourself? And while you preach against stealing, do you steal? You say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idolatry, do you commit sacrilege? You who boast in the Scripture, dishonor God by breaking God's Word. For as it's written, the name of God is blasphemed among the unbelievers because of you. For baptism is indeed valuable if you obey the Scripture, but if you disregard the Scripture, your baptism becomes unbaptism. So if a man who's baptized keeps the precepts of the Scripture, will not his unbaptism be regarded as baptism? Then he who is physically unbaptized but keeps the Scripture will condemn you who have the written code and baptism but disregard the Scripture. For, one is, for no one is a Christian who is merely one outwardly, nor is baptism outward and physical. But a Christian is one inwardly, and baptism is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Let's imagine what the religious person hears when he reads these words of Paul. As Paul is describing the corrupt morality of his day, the religious person is quick to join in, saying, you know, yeah, I'm really glad, Paul, that you're speaking about this because and this is terrible. This state of the country right now is terrible, and you should preach to those dirtbags who are perpetrating these crimes. And the, the divorce rate is up. Our political leaders lie to us all the time. And nobody wants to work. The school system's breaking down. There's an increase in crime, rampant increase in socially transmitted diseases. There's moral degradation. There's increasing violence. Go ahead and preach the word. You tell those guys. You tell those drug dealers, those scandal politicians. They need to hear this word. You tell it to them. But leave me out of it, because that doesn't fit me. This is about somebody else. It's not about me. I'm a very religious person. I have religious commitments, and I don't deserve to have this blanket condemnation that these other guys do. I'm, I'm a churchgoer. I'm part of a, of a Bible-believing church. I, I've been baptized. If you're Lutheran, you've gone through confirmation. I, I take communion. I support the church and the ministries of the church. And Paul replies, well, yeah, those are good things. I'm glad you're doing them. Keep doing those good things. But still, you need the gospel. Why? Because God's not interested in these outward things alone. Things like church membership, participation in the sacraments, stewardship. He is rather concerned about the condition of your heart. You know, he said in 1 Samuel... 16.7, maybe. <laughs> uh, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Now, these chosen people of God took great pride in their, their name, the name of being a Jew. Verse 17, if you call yourself a Jew, well, they've been known for a lot of different names in the centuries past. Um, they were known as Hebrews because of the language they spoke, which is Ivrit, I don't speak Hebrew. So, uh, uh, they were also called Israelites, having to do with where they lived in the area of Israel, the, the covenant which was given um, to Abraham. But by the time of Christ and the time Paul is writing, these people were generally known as Jews. The word Jew comes from one of the 12 tribes, Judah, who also had, was one of the southern two countries after the division of the 
kingdom of Solomon. Um, they were known as uh, Jews. So every time since the Babylonian captivity, the word Jew, right up to today, referred to all of these people, even though essentially it is a form of the word Judah, even though there are, uh, there are more than one tribes there. But this name began to be recognized both for their racial distinction as well as their religious heritage. And in their own minds, they see that this is a, this is a, a badge of honor, a, a, a mark of distinction. Despite the fact that through generations they have been oppressed by uh, other Gentile nations and, and were at this moment being oppressed by, by the Romans, yet still they, they saw this name being called Jew a name, a distinction of great pride because it marked them as especially favored people of God. But the problem is that the Jews had long lost sight of the purpose and the uniqueness of the divine calling which was placed by God on them as his special people through which, Genesis 12, 3, all the families of the earth were to be blessed. The reality is they had no desire to share this news, this blessing, uh, this God with anyone else. They felt especially privileged to, to be blessed by God, but they did not want anyone in the rest of the world to share that privilege too. Remember, as Hanson has been preaching through the book of Jonah, another one of the minor prophets, Jonah does not want to go to Nineveh because he does not want them to turn to God and repent. And that expressed pretty much the attitude of every Jew. Even though God had called them to be a light to the Gentiles, they don't want anyone else to share this light. They do not want the, Jew, the Gentiles to turn to God. So instead of viewing their Jewishness as a divine trust a, from, a, from a gracious, forgiving God, they began to view their Jewishness as a position that they had by their own rights, by their own merits. They, they believed that they were specially blessed by God, not because of God's grace, but because of their own goodness. And so that's why the minor prophets are repeatedly warning the people, don't trust in the fact that you are a covenant people, that you are Jewish. Don't trust in your covenant sign of circumcision to think that you can just do whatever you want to and you can sin with impunity and God's not going to hold you to account. The reality is God will hold you to account. They, they felt like their position and their mark of circumcision, the mark of their covenant community, protected them from God's wrath. Micah would declare to them that they, they felt presumptuously, is not the Lord in our midst. Calamity will certainly not come upon us. Micah warns them that one day their holy city, Jerusalem, will be plowed as a field and left in a heap of ruins. In a very similar way, since that time, people who self-identify as Christians are not necessarily Christians. Just calling yourself one doesn't make you one. Just walking into church doesn't make you a Christian any more than walking into McDonald's makes you a hamburger. You can't self-identify as a Christian and assume, I have the name, God has to love me. We think that we're safe from God's judgment just because we, we were born into a Christian family, or we, we walked the aisle, we signed the card, we said the prayer, we went through baptism, we belong to a church, we agree with their profession of faith. Now, some people consider themselves Christians just because they're not a Muslim or a Buddhist. Well, they must be a Christian. They've got to have some moniker. They've got to have some name. I'm in a Christian country, and I'm not a Buddhist or a Muslim. I must be a Christian. Again, calling yourself a Christian doesn't mean you are one. How does one become a Christian? Jesus said, you must be born again. Verse 17. <coughs> Excuse me. If you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law and you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher 
of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? So again, we find this Jew, interestingly enough, and today's Christian, making eight important claims here. Four of these claims about the Jews' special advantage Four of these claims about their religious privilege, again, having to do with the Jews' spiritual advantage. So the four that having to do with the Jews' spiritual advantage are, one, God has given us the law. Two, he's entered into a special relationship with us. Three, um, we've been given this law so that we know his will. And four, because of that, we approve only the most excellent and um, the best of human moral standards. Okay, and then we have four claims having to do with their privileges of being Jewish. Uh, one, to be a guide to the blind. Two, a light for those who are in darkness. Three, an instructor of the foolish. And four, to be a teacher of children. Now, if you were to evaluate those claims strictly on the surface level, you would see that, at least as far as they go, all those claims are true. Those, those are true. Of course, our contemporaries would say, whoa, 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 you can't make exclusive claims about any religion having those particular advantages. You can't make a truth claim that your faith is true and somebody else's can't. So we're not allowed to make those distinctions anymore. Of course, a Jew and a Christian would be able to say, no, there is one truth, this is it. God has chosen his people and he has made his knowledge available to them. He has spoken through his prophets. There is a truth. There is a way to be saved. There are not many different ways to be saved. The Jews have received this special revelation from God. It begins with Moses on Mount Sinai. God gives very specific revelation about who he is and what he expects from people. And then you have all of the sacred writings from the, like I said, from the kings and the chroniclers, the prophets, so the Jew is actually right in making these rather grandiose boasts about his special advantage and special privilege. No, really no argument about that. We recognize, too, as Christians, that the words in the Old Testament are really God's words. God is revealing who he is. And Peter wrote, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the, the next claim they make is absolutely true, too. God has entered into a, a special relationship with the Jewish people. He has chosen this people to show himself to be his covenant people with. Now, we just read from Amos chapter 3, verse 1. You only, of all the peoples on the earth, of all the families of the earth, you only have I chosen. So we see that God's rather selective. It's not universal. God did choose a particular people, the Jewish people. So the Jew is right in making those claims. He's therefore right when he says, since he has God's word, he is better instructed to know what God approves in the area of ethics and morality, because God has said so. We possess this absolute rule or, or, or yardstick or measure about what is moral and ethical and good. It's just not up to everyone to decide for yourself. Verse 21. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it's written, the name of God is blasphemed among Gentiles because of you. Well, obviously, Paul's teaching this subject of self-examination, and um, he, he pretty much says, you know, when you learn to teach somebody else, you're learning, you're instructing yourself as well. So when you learn what to tell other people about what God expects, you're learning that for yourself at all. And so whenever we expound on God's will, we have to be looking inwardly as well as outwardly. And he begins with the subject of, of uh, theft, and we all know what that is, you know, and Paul kind of challenges us. You, you know what theft is, and you know instinctively it's wrong. By the way, you don't need God's word. Everybody understands that theft is wrong. But he says, okay, you know what theft is. Maybe you don't engage actively in 
literal theft, you know, taking an object that does not belong to you. But as Jesus was talking about the, the root of sin being in the heart, we can answer too, okay, you don't engage in physical theft, but when you, when you are lazy at work, when you are wasteful at work, when you don't, uh, you don't use your time well at work, you are essentially stealing from your employer. Uh, when you, I gotta say this carefully so I don't get myself in trouble and wind up in jail this week. <laughs> when you take out a loan and you don't pay it back, that's theft. When you borrow money to go to school and you expect somebody else to pay for your school loan, that's theft. That might end up in jail for that one, right? <laughs> okay, well, let's move on. You might not actually commit physical adultery, but as Jesus says, you know, if you lust in your heart, you are presenting the fact that your heart, your spirit, your person, you are willing to commit adultery. You just haven't done it. You just haven't been given the right bait yet. So Jesus says if you lust after someone, you already have an adulterous heart. And so we can extend that further because pornography is a form of adultery. And so is illicit flirtation and crude, lascivious talk is a form of adultery. I'm a little confused what he meant by the robbing of temples. a little harder to decipher here. Obviously, temples were a place where precious metals and objects were stored, and bandits and conquering um, generals did often rob the temples and despoil them. But really, the Jews almost never did this. And so it's a little hard to understand what Paul is getting at and why he cited it here, specifically because the theft and adultery are quite literal. So it's hard to understand what he means by the, the robbing of temples, whether he means that metaphorically or he's talking about sacrilege in general, or if he means some, uh, something that happened that you know, is lost to us in, in history, that maybe, maybe the Jews did rob a temple when it was, it was famous. But whatever the point is that Paul is making is just this, that there's a, there's a gap between what one claims and how one conducts himself that pervaded at least Judaism of the day. So that, I don't know any closer than that. I'm, I'm kind of at a loss. Point is, when you take chapter 2 from verse 12 to where we are now, verse 23, um, the point is that we see as whereas the Gentiles could not excuse themselves by saying, I didn't know, no one instructed me, I was ignorant of the law, the Jews cannot exonerate them to, by, themselves simply by saying, well, I learned what God's word was. I know the truth. I am educated in what God claims to be. For both of them, it's not what you know, it's what you do. It's what you do with what you know. So education, knowing God's word is no excuse for being lazy about engaging in sin. What counts is your life, not your database. So when those go, when those who, when those who go by God's name, whether we're going by the name of Jew or Christian, when we're openly sinful, it blasphemes God's name. What do you think happens? You know, this happens so much. Like every year, you read about some famous pastor who commits adultery or or embezzlement or something like that, and what happens? The the pagan world mocks Christ. They blaspheme God because of this famous man's uh, indiscretions or, or sinful behavior. What do you think happens on the level that we live in when the pagans, when the unbelievers see us engaging in something they know is morally corrupt, they conclude, what good is your religion? What good is your God? Why would they run to Christ for forgiveness when they see in you that inconsistency. So that's what Paul gets at here. You know, your behavior contradicts your profession. Verse 25. For circumcision is of value if you obey the law. 
But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man, and, a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit. But by the... Uh, I lost my place. Circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, but by the latter. Uh, his praise is not from God, but from man. So here again, there's a parallel that's being drawn between the Jew and the Christian today. God chose, for whatever reason, to make a covenant people unique to himself. And they were to be his, his special loved people, his covenant community. And he commanded as part of the sign of belonging to that covenant that since the time of Abraham, every male who was part of the covenant community would receive the physical mark of circumcision on his body as the mark of his entrance to the covenant community of faith. But circumcision is much more than a mark or a procedure there's a spiritual significance to that. Barnhouse says, in all of the Bible, there's a demonstration that the importance was a spiritual one, not merely a physical one. There had to be this physical conformity because the obedient heart would accept the word of the Lord without question. It was certain that a heart that disobeyed in the outward conformity would never obey in the inward conformity. For the real meaning of circumcision is, of course, the spiritual one. And of course, shortly before his death, uh, Moses explained that there was a lot more to circumcision than receiving this physical mark. He said this, this, this mark that identified them as part of the covenant community they, as God's special people, said, there's more to it than just receiving the physical mark. It has to be shown in actions, in, in, your, in your affections, in the way you live your life. Deuteronomy 10, 16, circumcise your hearts, therefore, and so not be stiff-necked any longer. Circumcise not the flesh only, but the heart. Dedicate it to the Lord. So now Paul is addressing the Jews in general, and he's insisting that the law, even the mark of submitting oneself to the law, is itself insufficient to please God. It, it confers no eternal uh, benefits. And so Paul, he, he realizes that he is writing to Jewish Christians in Rome, and he's naming circumcision that was to be the, the sign of their, their loyalty, their, their commitment, their, their part of this covenant community. In fact, you know, an interesting thing, by Paul's time, the Jewish rabbis had declared that any man who was circumcised would never go to Gehenna, would never go to hell. In fact, it was through circumcision that the whole nation was to be saved. And somehow they came to the belief that Abraham sat at the gates of hell and anybody who had been circumcised, he would rescue them so no circumcised person would, would end up in hell. By Paul's day, they, they, they boasted it as this certain passport to salvation. And they had this overconfidence in it. And that's why Paul is correcting them, saying circumcision is of value, I'm in verse 25, circumcision is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Again, he's not denying that circumcision is important. He's not saying that it didn't come from, from God. He, he's recognizing that. This is a divine command. I, I understand that. But it's pointless if you think that's going to save you. It's the sign of the covenant. It's not the essence of it. The essence of the covenant is that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. And secondly, to love your neighbor as yourself. And third, that you should heed the law as a guide to those commitments. The Jews had massively overestimated circumcision. I think Christians, particularly nominal Christians, that word means in name only, also put massive amounts of trust in their baptism. And I have talked to many people who think baptism is somehow magical. It's mystical, but it's not magical. 
We used to have this family in this church. The parents were into the magic of baptism. They felt like you know, they, they wanted to get their teenage daughter baptized so that it would guarantee that she would be saved. You know, and then she could wander away. She could do sow her wild oats as teenagers do when they get to college. But she would be saved because she was baptized. I, I knew that the parents thought that way, and I, I asked, as I always do, to interview the, the girl, the teenager that I was to be baptizing because I anticipated that I wasn't going to do the baptism because I wasn't going to reinforce that kind of magic. But as I interviewed the girl, it turned out she really did understand her Christian faith, and she really did want to submit to the obedience, since the Lord commands us to be baptized. That's what, part of what makes it a, a sacrament. And so I agreed to baptize her. This was back before we had this building. We were still in the old church. I didn't, we didn't have any physical way to baptize people, so we either baptized them in the salt water, or we borrowed one of the two baptismals at the Baptist churches. Because what do you know? Baptists have baptismals. <laughs> okay, so they're filling up the baptismal. There's a big glass wall in the front of it. And I'm watching as they're filling it up. And the parents showed up with 10 gallons in jugs of Jordan River water. And they dumped that in, because they want to make sure if she gets baptized, we do this right. You know, we get... We get an ordained pastor, and we got the Jordan River water, and so the, the, everything was going to be done right. See, again, it's foolish to rely on any mark of the covenant and hope that that mark guarantees salvation. Any scripture or sacrament can have its effect, you know, even if it's done poorly, but it can also not have its effect if we assume that some magic is attached to it. By the way, I got in the water with her, so I'm pretty sure I'm saved up to about here. <laughs> Sorry about the rest of you guys that didn't have any Jordan River water in your baptismal thing. The other side of this that makes it problematic is you think that after you've done some ritual like that, that was easy. Now I'm saved. You know, I got baptized. I'm, I can live my life as I want to. I can be a total derelict. I'm saved because I got baptized. The other side of the coin of that, now we're on the third side of the coin, by the way. <laughs> we had this guy that was a member of this church, and somewhere along the line, he came to believe in baptismal regeneration. That is, that if you get baptized, you're saved. And if you are not baptized, you're not saved. So if you're not baptized, sorry, you don't get to be saved. And I tried to instruct him that baptism does not save. Baptism is not salvific. But he wouldn't listen to me. And he doesn't come here anymore. I kicked him out. No, I didn't. <laughs> No, he was pretty upset with me, but I told him baptism is not salvific. However, baptism is a command. If you are a Christian and you name Jesus as your Lord, you do what your Lord tells you to do. That would be the definition of being a Lord. And he tells us to be baptized. At any rate, it's the sign and seal of what's taking place in the spiritual world. So baptism itself is not the washing away of the sins. It is a sign that points to some other reality, just like the sign curves ahead. The sign, 45 mile an hour around this curve. It's not the sign which is the reality. The sign points to the reality. So in each of our sacraments, baptism and communion, which we're about ready to take place, they're a sign of a reality which takes place in the spiritual world. The water baptism does not wash away my sin. The blood of Jesus washes away my sin. What can take away my sin? Exactly. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. But it is a sign and a symbol. So the, the waters of baptism are a sign of the washing away of sin. They're not the washing away of the sin. They're a sign of that we, we are laid into the water. If I talk too long at this point, you will drown and be dead. But it's a sign of being dead. You're not really dead, but it's a sign of that being dead. You might be mostly dead. <laughs> and so you're, you're identifying with Christ in the laying into the, 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 the grave and then the identifying with Christ in the raising to new life. And so we're, we are picturing, we are signing that I've, I've died to myself, 
and I'm now living this new life. I've been raised to new life with Jesus Christ. It's just symbolic. It's not the reality. The reality is we have been washed spiritually in the blood of Christ. We have died to ourselves. We have made this decision. We have been resurrected with Christ. I'm identifying with Christ through the symbolism of the baptism. So it's an, it's an act of obedience. It's not magic. There's a mystical part of it where grace is mystically conferred upon us, but it's not magic. God is not obligated to do something because we have done something for him. Now, Paul wanted to chase the Jews from this vain religion, this vain hope. He wants to do the same for us too. And so he reminds the Jewish Christians, that this sign that they are hoping is going to guarantee their salvation, if they just keep reading, when you get to the second giving of the law in Deuteronomy 29 or 30-ish, um, we're also told that receiving this sign is also a mark of the, the, uh, the, the uh, con condemnation that would come upon those who have the sign but don't live by it. And the same could be said for our sign of the new covenant. Baptism doesn't save anybody, nor does joining the church, but it is an outward sign of what God has promised to do inwardly. Now, the final sentence here is cute, but we miss it in English. So it's not important, but I think it's amusing. The final sentence here, um, uh, the one who's truly transformed will... Uh, unlike the one who's simply conforming, will have a life of obedience because he's seeking approval from God. The one who's truly transformed by the Holy Spirit will be living his life to please God. The one who does these things to conform to the expectation of the church or their parents or the pastor or their Sunday school teacher is doing it for the approval of men, not for God. So there's a, there's a secret meaning in the language here, which is only really understood by the Jews. Remember, he's writing now to the Christian Jews in Rome, but only the Jews are going to get that. Now, he's asking them, who is the real Jew? What is a true Jew? And the answer comes, like I said, from their association with the name. The name Jew comes from the name Judah, which was Yehuda. Yehuda is a a variation of the word yada, which means praise or worship. Remember when uh, Jacob's um, sons were born to Leah, she gives them the names. Genesis 29, Leah gives Judah his name. She, she gives birth to a son. She said, I, I, uh, I praise the Lord, so she named him Judah. So that's that, that's that uh, double entendre there, the yada, I praise, and so I gave him the name Yahuda. I gave him the name Judah. And so, when, again, when Jacob is dying, he's on his deathbed, and Judah comes to him, Genesis 49, and, and Jacob says, your brothers will praise you. There's another play on that word, yada, yahuda. So the, the Jew is someone whose name means praise. So now Paul is turning the phrase here to say the true Jew is one who gives praise to God, who brings praise to God, and who receives praise from God. So too, no less should, it, should be said about the Christian. The Christian is one we should live to give praise to God, and we should live to bring others to come praise God. And our hope is that we will receive praise from God. You are a light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. See, now Paul is tightening the noose around the neck of these complacent religious people, these covenant people, just like Amos was doing when he was drawing the noose around disobedient and indifferent Israel. God hates the pretext of religion. It's not 
what you know or what you profess. It's not your covenant sign. It's what you do or don't do. Let's pray. I'll ask uh, Hanson and Jacob if you'll come forward now. And the men who will be distributing the elements, would you come forward now? Father God, we want to thank you for your word and for the challenge that each word brings to us. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would cause this word to find its target in our hearts, that it would hit the mark. I pray, God, that we'd ruminate on these truths and we wouldn't feel that we are uh, insulated, uh, protected from your correction because the loving Father corrects the Son in whom he loves and takes delight. Father, now as we set aside these common elements, this bread, this wine to represent the body of Jesus, his life lived in righteous obedience to us, to, to you and transferred to us, this blood which represents his blood, the innocent sacrifice victim, his blood not only shed for us, but now covering us, covering our sin, that as you look through the mercy seat to the law which has been violated. You look through the sprinkling of the blood of the innocent. The one that you have accepted is sufficient. Father, we know that we must one day give an account for our lives, but we are so grateful as those who have received your grace that while we give an account, we will not be punished, not because we don't deserve it, but because the punishment has already been given. It has been taken by Jesus Christ for us, and we celebrate that fact. We look back to the cross as we acknowledge those things, and we look forward to the wedding feast of the Lamb when there will be more than just bread and wine at the table. We will celebrate that we have been redeemed by your grace. And now, Father, as we commune with one another and as we commune with you by your Holy Spirit, through the use of these tangible physical elements, we declare once again, we want to live lives that please you. We want to live lives that bring you praise. And we want to live lives that ultimately one day result in receiving praise from you. To that end, may it be so, we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.